way with their, their teachers. Grace Station heading this way, uh, uh, six years old up to fifth grade. The lesson they're both going to be learning today is the first lesson in our new series. And uh, the first lesson that they're learning today is that God is real. God is real. God's not some imaginary being. He is the living God. That's what the scriptures declare to us this morning. Not just passages like Acts chapter 17, verse 29, but also passages like Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5 and 6, which is actually where we'll be this morning. So I want to invite you to turn with me to Hebrews 11, verses 5 through 6. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, the Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me uh, in the black hardback Bible that's sitting in front of you. You're welcome to grab that and use it. It's going to be found on page 1195. So there's an 11 there on, in the middle of that page. And just a few verses below that, a few lines below that 11, you'll see number 5 and 6. Those are the verses that we're going to be looking at this morning. So regularly as a church, we open God's Word up and we ask God to, to teach us what the next few verses uh, have to say to us. And we have found ourselves providentially Hebrews 11 verses 5 through 6. Let me ask you a question, though. Maybe this will hit home for you. I believe it has for me. Have you ever felt it impossible to please somebody? I don't mean to make your life a terrible reminder this morning, but you've probably begun to think about somebody in your life that you've had a painful relationship with. Maybe it was your boss. Maybe it's your boss right now. Or maybe it's a spouse. You feel like no matter what you do, it's not good enough. You can't please this person. That sort of a situation is exhausting. Or maybe you're not married and you don't necessarily have a job just yet, but, but maybe you feel this way with your parents. I can understand on both sides, both being a parent and having parents. It's difficult sometimes to think that I could actually please them, that they would be happy with me. Or maybe it's just the DMV. You stand in line, and yet again, for the 10th time, you don't have the right paperwork. And so you got to go home and start all over again. Whether it be teachers or parents or postal office people, sometimes we have encountered folks that we just can't seem to please. Let me ask you this. Have you ever felt that way with God? Have you ever felt like you cannot do enough to please God? Have you ever felt like nothing you do could satisfy God? We've just prayed to the Lord of glory. And maybe even as we prayed, you thought, I just don't know how to make the Lord of glory happy. Maybe you think this way of the church. No matter what I do, no matter how much I serve, no matter how much I read or memorize or how much sin I run from or how much I talk about Jesus, I, just, I still just never feel like I'm being accepted or that I please the church. And maybe that has led some of you to be tempted to, in your exhaustion, to turn away from God altogether. It's a painful question. 
It's a painful statement. I just don't feel like I could please God. If that's you this morning, or if you know someone that feels that way exactly, then this passage is going to be so helpful for you. This morning, this passage is literally answering the question, what does God want from you? What would make God happy? How could you please God? Is there even a real and sure way to please God? This passage is speaking to you. And so let's look at it this morning together. So Hebrews 11, verses five through six. Our brother Enoch, this is what it says of him. By faith, there's that rhythm again, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And here's the commentary on our brother Enoch. And coupled with that, our brother Abel. Verse six it says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, we've said this before, and we'll say it every single week. There's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves apart from the Holy Spirit to understand this. So we're just going to stop again, and we're going to ask him to do a work that we can't do. Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit that lives in the hearts of those who are trusting in Jesus right now, we ask that you would help us to understand this text. Father, help me to declare it truthfully and accurately. Father, help us to understand what it means and how to apply it to our lives. We're desperate to do that. We want to love Jesus more. We want to treasure him more. We want to please you. Help us to understand how. We ask this again in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to go ahead and give you the main idea, and I promise it'll stay on the screen a little longer so that you can write it down. I talk a little fast, and the screen goes about as fast, and so here's the main idea. We'll go ahead and throw it up now. Now. There you go. Here it is. Nothing pleases God more than when a sinner comes to him by faith through his Son. Nothing pleases God more than when a sinner comes to him by faith through his son. So how can you please God? How? You come to him by faith through his son. That's the only way. Let's keep doing a little bit more work, though. Let's unpack this text and the main idea We've got three points this morning. I won't give them all to you right now. We'll just give the first point that helps to explain this main idea in this text. The first is this, that there is a way to please God. There is a way to please God. Look at verse 5. The second part says, now before he was taken, speaking of Enoch, he was commended as having pleased God. We don't know much about this guy Enoch, but we know that he's the seventh from Adam in, in generations. We know that there was a time in Enoch's life that he didn't walk with God. And then there was a time that he did walk with God. And after he walked with God, after he pleased God, after a period of time, God took him. 
This is what Genesis chapter 5, verses 21 and 24 say to us as well. And so if you want, you can read it on the screen, or you can flip back to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis means beginnings or book of beginnings. And so it's the first book in the Bible and the very first book in the Old Testament. So you can flip back to Genesis 5, where it says this in verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, we'll work through some of these other questions that you might have. What does it mean to be taken? Does that have anything to do with a particular set of skills? Well, not necessarily, But Genesis chapter 5 is telling us that Enoch walked with God and almost quoted right out of that is Hebrews chapter 11 verse 5 that says Enoch pleased God. Why does one say that Enoch walked with God and the other said that that Enoch pleased God? Well, I, I don't want to make this too confusing, but I want you to know this. The Old Testament was mainly written in the language of Hebrew. Hebrew. Now, nobody today probably in this congregation speaks Hebrew. Anybody here speak Hebrew? Uh, Just a few of us, uh, or or none at all. And and so that was exactly what the the people of God were finding there around the time of Jesus, around the time of the the early church. And, and, And definitely before that, they found that not many people understood Hebrew. And so what they did with the Old Testament Hebrew Bible was they, they said, well, how can we translate this into a language where more people would understand it? And so they chose the language Greek. And they translated the Old Testament into the more common used language of that day, which was Greek. And they call that now the Septuagint. It's the Greek Septuagint. Anytime you hear the word Septuagint, by the way, there's a couple youngins in here. Say Septuagint. All of you, all of you. Ready? Three, two, one, Septuagint. Kind of has that tui in it, like a perpetuity, right? Like last week. The Greek Septuagint, though, uh, when it translated this uh, this, uh, this verse that Enoch walked with God, when it translated it into uh, Greek, it actually translated it, Enoch pleased God. Now, it didn't make the adjustment on its own, and it's not saying anything different. These two statements, though they're different in language and, and almost in meaning, they're not different in idea. They're conveying the same thing. To walk with God is to please God. They're equivalent statements. To please God is to walk with him. To walk with him is to please him. Here, Enoch pleased God. He walked with God. You say, well, I wasn't sure if there was a way to please God. I thought maybe he was like my boss or my parents or doctor. But now you're saying there was a man who pleased God. And he pleased God by walking with God What does that actually look like? Well, immediately to mind comes Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. I think it'd be helpful for you to turn there if you have a copy of God's Word. If you don't, it'll be on the screen. Maybe as I read it, it will come to your mind what this passage is actually saying. It's actually quoted quite often. You find it at Hobby Lobby, on on little uh, mugs and, and placards to put on your husband's wall. But there's more than that. It has more use than those sorts of things. Verse 6 says, 
With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? These are some rhetorical questions, and it's not actually the prophet Micah speaking here. He's speaking for somebody who's frustrated because they don't really know how to please God. And so he's miming for them. He says, will it please, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Will that make God happy if I sacrificed 1,000 rams? How, how about this? Would God be happy if, if I came before him uh, with uh, 10,000 rivers of oil? Not just 10,000 jars of oil or vats of oil, but 10,000 rivers of flowing, perpetual oil. Maybe that wouldn't even please God, he says. And so he continues in verse 7 and says, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What's, what's, the, uh, what's Micah miming for those who are struggling to understand what God expects of them. What's he saying? Well, they're, they're asking the question, God, what do you really want from me? It's kind of the same question that we started this time asking. God, what do you really want from me? What else can I give to you? I feel like I've just given you everything already and I just, there's still this like nagging thing in the back of my mind that I haven't done enough. Do you want me to sacrifice a thousand rams? Do you want me to give you 10,000 rivers of oil? How about I give you my son? How about that? Would that make you happy? It's almost as, as if they're accusing God. You just want too much. You just can't, I can never please you. Again, maybe you've felt that way before. And so this passage here in Micah chapter 6 is particularly helpful for you. God, what else do you want? Well, verse 8, I love what he says here. And he speaks really to all of us. He says, he's told you, oh man, oh woman, what is good? He's already told you. And what does the Lord require? He starts out verse 8 by saying he's already told you. And, and what he's doing here in the rest of that verse is quoting actually out of Deuteronomy chapter 10. He's saying, he's already told you. You're coming in this morning, and you're saying, God, what do you want from me? What do you, what do you expect? I've already come here. I've got my Bible. I've got a haircut. I've I got some clean clothes on today. I'm not going fishing today. It's a beautiful day. I could be gardening. What else do you want from me? And the prophet says, he's already told you. But I'll tell you again. At the end of verse 8, he says, but to do justice. This is what God requires of you. To do justice. To love kindness. And to walk humbly with your God. To walk humbly with your God. What is he saying here? He's saying, hey, there's already been a sacrifice made for you. And you're getting a little bit antsy. You've already gone to the temple. You've made your sacrifice. On the day of Yom Kippur, the high priest went into the temple and he made a sacrifice for all the people of Israel. And that's the context here. That's already happened but now there's this guilt and this nagging feeling that says, hey, that's not enough. It's not enough. You, you had faith in God to do these things and to be a part of what was happening in the, te in the temple. But now you've got this feeling that it's not enough. And, and Micah says, you don't need to do anything else. That literally is enough. You don't need to make more sacrifices. 
You have faith in what God has said about the sacrifices. Continue to have faith and continue to walk in faith. Not just to say, oh, the sacrifice is enough, but to actually believe that what God has said about justice, what he said about mercy, what he said about your life, humbly walking with him, that that is right in line with faith. Nothing more to be added. God is not asking anything of you that you can't already give. He's asking you to walk by faith. That's what Micah is saying to us today. I asked this morning if you've ever felt like it was difficult for you to please God. Maybe I should have asked a question before that. Before we move any farther, let me ask you, and I want you to really ask yourself this question in honesty. And if you need help, ask the Spirit of God to answer this for you. Do you truly want to please God? Do you really want to please God? Some of us might say, well, I don't know if it can be done, but before that, do you really want to please him? Because if you do, the scriptures are telling us that the way that we please God is to walk with God, and we walk with him by faith. When we live our lives and we see an opportunity to do justice, we do it. You say, well, that's a work, that's doing something. In a sense, it is, but truly, you're only doing that. Why? Because you believe that this is true. You believe that this is what God requires and this is what God blesses because he said so. Back in Deuteronomy 10, and even in the Pentateuch, throughout the entire Pentateuch, in the Ten Commandments. Past justice, that you love mercy. To love mercy. What does it mean to love mercy? Well, to love mercy, it doesn't just mean that you apply mercy to other people, but it means that you yourself think you need mercy. To love mercy is not just to say, I don't need mercy, but other people need mercy, and so I love to give mercy. That's not what it means. That's only part of it. To love mercy says that I need mercy, which is to imply and to to infer that I have sinned, I have wronged God. There have been times I haven't loved justice. There's been times when I haven't done justice. And so coupled with doing justice is loving mercy and asking God for it by faith, which again is what we're doing when we, in the Old Testament, make sacrifices. Or in the New Testament, when we look to Jesus, who is our sacrifice. We're loving mercy. And that last part, to walk humbly with your God. To walk humbly with your God. It's a beautiful thing that he's called us to. What does it mean to walk with God? Let me just make a few statements about this quickly. Number one, it's not referring to a physical act. To walk with God does not mean that you put on your Asics, and if you're a father, you have white ones, and you pull your white socks halfway up your knee, and you just begin to walk with God. That's, that's not what it means. To walk with God is not a physical action. Now, you say, does that mean it doesn't... In- couldn't possibly involve that? Uh, does it mean that maybe, uh, does it mean when I spend time with God by hiking up to Annapolis Rocks, that's not walking with God? Well, in a sense it is, but it's not exclusively a physical act. So it's not a physical act. What is it? Well, before we get into the nuts and bolts of it, let me say this. It's a relational action. It's a relationship 
To walk with God is not a physical action, but it is a relational one. To walk with God. Throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament, we see men and women who, though they did not physically walk with God like Adam and Eve there in the garden, they most certainly walked with God relationally. So it's not a physical act. It's certainly a relational act. But let me say this. It indicates agreement. It's a proverb. It's a common adage, not just in Scripture, but throughout history, across the globe, throughout time. How can two people walk together unless they be in agreement? You guys have all seen this. You try to walk with somebody. Maybe when you first get married, you're like, hey, we're going to go on a hike. This is going to be great. You start walking, and you walk at the pace that you normally walk at, and your spouse or your friend or whoever it is that's with you, they walk at the pace that they usually walk at. And if you don't pay attention, guess what will happen? You're not walking together anymore. For some of you, that means you need to slow down, and some of you, that means you, you need to speed up, right? There's this, and then maybe you do. You swap roles. Maybe one of you gets tired, wears out before the next, and the next thing you know, you're trying to catch up with one another again. Well, to walk with God, that means that in your regular life, in, in your relationship with him, you are going at the same speed, the same cadence that God is walking at. That means the, the timing of God's is your timing. But not just the timing of God, but also the direction. If you were to join me as we were to hike the Appalachian Trail, and you guys are like, I can tell by the looks of you, you don't do a whole lot of hiking. That's true. But hypothetically, if we were to meet there at uh, one of the parking lots along the great Appalachia Trail, and we were to, uh, or Appalachia Trail, depending on if you want to be right or wrong, if we were to meet there and we were saying, hey, let's go on a hike. So let's say a group of us went together, five or ten of us. We said, hey, let's, let's hike together. And we all kind of did our stretches. We got our little bags ready with our little kind bars or got some extra water. And the rest of us who are totally unprepared are like about to be fed to the wolves. But we get ready to walk. And as we go, we're like, all right, let's go. And we set out. There was 10 of us at the beginning. But after about two minutes, we realized, wait a minute, half of the group is gone. Well, what's happened? Well, we've started at the same time. Potentially, we're even walking at the same brisk pace. But the reality is that on the Appalachia Trail, you can head north and you can head south. And some of us have headed the wrong way. At any rate, we're not walking together. That might describe this hypothetical situation of us hiking on the trail, but it most certainly applies to many of us spiritually in our walks with God. We walk with God, not physically, but we do relationally, but sometimes we find ourselves going a totally different direction than what God has told us to go. You say, well, some of that's so subjective. How do we know God's not a physical creature? Well, he's not a creature at all. And no, he is a spirit. And we can't see with our eyes, but we can see with faith. And faith says that this word that God has given to us is a lamp unto our feet. It's a light unto our path. And we're asking ourselves, do we really want to please God? Do we really want to walk with God? Then we will say, what does the word of God say? 
And am I walking in step and time and in the same direction as the word of God? There's so many ways that we could go with application. Where will you live? Who will you marry? What will you spend your time on? What will you spend your money on? We all have the same amount of time in the day. And we budget that out differently. Are you allowing the word of God, the timing of God, and the direction of God to direct you? Wherever it may be, whatever it is, asking God, asking his word, and asking God and his word in the presence of God's people is a way that we can be assured that we are walking with God. Before we move on, I just want to say this about walking with God. It's not so much as a definition, but it is a warning. There's a possibility that you think you're walking with God, but you're actually not. You're just learning about God. There's a possibility that you're actually not walking with God. You're just learning about him. And it's great to learn about God, to read about God, and not just in his word and not just through sermons and through life groups and D groups and and all the other ways that we can learn more about God. Those things are great. But if they do not find action coming alongside of that, then you're not walking with God. We talked about this before. The book of James warns us and says that the, the demons, which by the way, God exists, the scriptures tell us, and so do demons. And the demons know that God exists, and they're ten times the theologian that the best of us is. Do you get that? If, if we wanted to understand a, a real systematic theology that was accurate and robust, you know what, if we could hire a demon to write it, he would write the best. You say, even better than Grudem or Burkhoff? Absolutely. But you see, it's not so much that they know about God, but it's that they do not walk with God. And so the warning for us this morning is this. Don't be satisfied with just knowing about God. Do not be satisfied until you are walking with God. Considering Micah chapter 6, verse 8, just referencing that again. As we walk with God, as we learn about God, that learning about God should lead us to doing justice. That learning about God should lead us to loving kindness and mercy. Us ourselves loving it more. And that learning about God should lead us to walking with God, but not just walking with God, walking humbly with God. Considering all those together, if you have a faith that you believe is walking with God, but you don't love justice, you're not, or love mercy, and you're not doing justice, then you're not actually walking with God. And then to even put it more bluntly, if you have a theology, if you have a walk with God that is not demonstrated in humility, then you're not actually walking with God. The scriptures teach us that he resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. You try to walk the Appalachia Trail with God with a haughty spirit, he ain't going to walk with you. You're not going to last long. Why? He rejects the proud. 
There's no way to be in God's presence with, without humility, without humble trust in him, without humble submission to him. Now, there is a way to please God. What is that way? Well, Enoch, he pleased God. How did he do it? Well, he walked with God, and, and, and that's how he pleased God, and he did so by faith. What is faith? Well, we talked about this two weeks ago and a little bit last week. Faith is believing not in God, but believing God. And that's how Enoch pleased God. He believed God. That's it. So by way of transition, I want you to imagine if Enoch were to be received back. He's like, just as quick as he got translated or transported to heaven, he got transported or deported back. If he were to be here, we would receive him afterwards with, well, coffee and fried chicken. We're Baptists, and so we would have a, we'd have a meal. And after the meal, or maybe during the meal, we'd be talking to him. We'd be like, Enoch, tell me, how was it? How did you please God? I mean, it was incredible. Maybe we'd have him in Sunday school class and say, Chuck, give him a break. Uh, give Chuck a break. Let's interview Enoch, and let's find out. Enoch, hey, what, what exactly did you do to please God? We're celebrating, we're hoisting him up, we're asking him what he do, and he'd be like, what, what do you mean? I, I, I pleased God? Well, the only thing I know is I, I just believed what God said was true. That's it. That's, that's it? Yes, faith is simply believing that what God said is true. Nobody here is really impressed by that. We, we like to know, like, okay, I want to know the secret we get our notebooks out. We're like, Enoch, tell us all the steps. Give us the 10 steps. Give us the seven steps. And Enoch's like, I, I, when God said something to me, I just believed it. I, I simply believed that what he said was true. I, I believe that God exists. And, and not just that he exists, but I, I believe what he said, that if I diligently seek him, that I would find him. If I diligently seek him, that I would be found pleasing in his sight. I just believed what he said was true. And so, friends, you say, I want to know how to please God. Well, here it is. Believe God. Believe what God says. The first point is that there is a way to please God. The second point is this, that faith is the only way to please God. It's the only way to please God. Verse six says, Without faith, it is difficult to please God. Now, some of you paid attention, huh? Huh? It doesn't say it's difficult to please God. It says without faith, it is impossible to please God. Why? Because whoever would draw near to God first has to believe that he exists, that I'm drawing near to someone. When we pray to God, when we walk with God, we're saying, God, I believe that you exist. And not just does it say that we have to believe he exists, but that he rewards those who seek him. Other translations, I think, translated a little bit more precisely, who diligently seek him. This is a more, a, a, a more intense word than just to seek God. It's to diligently seek God. But before we talk about that, I want you to understand the exclusivity of faith. If you are to please God like Enoch, you must rest your faith on God's promises. You have to. It is literally the only way 
to please God. You say, well, surely there's other ways, not according to the scriptures. Well, I'm sure I could find a way. Ask our friend Cain. He tried the same thing. He tried to find another way to please God, and he was rejected, and it frustrated him. And here with Enoch, we see it's the only way. What sort of faith did Enoch have? Well, we don't know much about what his faith was in, but we knew and know that he has faith. Here's some things that we do know. Number one, Enoch knew what happened in the garden. Enoch knew what happened in the garden. You say, well, you're, you're making a little bit of a stretch. Well, not really. Did you, did you know that Adam, the first man God created, lived for 50 years as a contemporary of Enoch? They lived at the same time. Now, that was at the end of Adam's life and the beginning of Enoch's life, but they lived as contemporaries, potentially even neighbors, for 50 years, almost, 47, I believe. You better know that the story of what had happened there in the garden had been brought to Enoch's attention. When they had those family reunions and everybody was looking over as somebody had just burned their hand, taken the roast out of the oven, and the people who had been working to make the bread all week long for this huge meal, had blisters and, and uh, thorns, and they were tired and wore out. Everybody looks over at Adam and says, this is your fault. This happened for a long time. They knew what had happened. They knew the, the promise, and they had seen it. All of Enoch's life, for 50 years, he had attended many funerals, we can assume. And at every funeral that he attended, do you know what was reminded to them? This happened because we were removed from the garden. This never happened in the garden. We ate of the tree of life in the garden, and nobody died there. It's because of sin. It's because we've rebelled against God, and that's why we die. And so Enoch knew what happened in the garden. He knew that in the day that they ate of it, they would surely die. They were removed from the garden, and then the, the clock began to tick. And one day it ended for Adam. Enoch knew why that was true. Well, that's number one. Enoch knew what happened in the garden. It was said that you will surely die, but furthermore, he knew the promise that was also given in the garden that God, that God gave to the serpent in, uh, in, in connection with the seed of the woman. He said, I'm going to send a deliverer. You say, well, that was just said to Adam and Eve. Well, it was said to Adam and Eve, but we know it today, don't we? And if we know it today, that gives good indication that it had been passed down through the generations, that this is what took place there in the garden. And if it passed from Adam to Moses, we know that somewhere along the way it passed by Enoch. Enoch also knew this great promise that though death had come into the world because of man's sin, Enoch also knew that God was going to do something about it. He was going to rescue mankind from, the, from slavery to the serpent. What else did he know? Well, he knew the coming of Yahweh to judge. He knew that God Almighty was coming to judge. Well, where did you get that at? There's so little said of, of Enoch. Well, that's true, but in Jude 14, he's actually quoted there. Enoch is. You could turn there if you want, but Jude 14 and 15, this is what the scriptures say. It was also about these 
that Enoch, seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. He likes the word ungodly, Enoch does. But he knew somehow. He said, well, how did he know? I don't don't know how he knew. He'd been given some special revelation, Enoch had been, that God was going to come down to earth with 10,000 of his holy ones. Now, what does holy ones mean? It could mean saints. It could mean Christians. It could mean those who have been sanctified or set apart because of their faith in Jesus could mean them it could also mean angels they're also holy ones either one Enoch is saying God is coming and God is coming to judge he was a preacher and so he knew of the coming of Yahweh as we read in Jude 14 but here's another piece of information that helps us to understand what was it that Enoch knew that he was having his faith placed into well there's another clue Enoch had a son Do you remember what his name was? He's one of the most famous Old Testament guys because he's the oldest. He's the crustiest. Methuselah. What does the name Methuselah mean? Maybe you remember. It means something along the lines of when he dies, it comes. When he dies, it comes. Hebrews are notorious, uh, Jews are notorious, especially in the Old Testament, for giving a name to their child that means something. Prophetic, often. Each name, even the name Jesus, what does it mean? Well, why was the Son of God eternal, not created, but incarnate? Why did he receive the name Jesus? Was his name Jesus in heaven? No. But when he comes to earth, he's given a Hebrew name, Jesus. Why did we call him Jesus? Why were we told to call him Jesus? Because he'll save his people from their sins. It means salvation. And with Methuselah, it's kind of the opposite. When he dies, it's over. And what happened? What happened when Methuselah died? The scriptures teach us that the flood came. And maybe that is the fulfillment of what Enoch promised and prophesied and preached would take place, that God in the flood was coming with judgment. Maybe that's what he's talking about. Many theologians think that that he's actually referenced the second coming that's still yet to happen, that we await even now that God will return in the second person of the Trinity. He will come and he will judge this earth. At any rate, Jude believed that, and he preached And he named his son in line with that. And finally, there's something there that I want you to see. Maybe you missed it. But in verse 22 of Genesis chapter 5, it says, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years. We say, well, that, that doesn't necessarily mean he didn't walk with God before. Well, it sort of does. Why would he put it there? Well, it wants us to to understand that there was a point in time when Enoch didn't walk with God, and then there was a time when he did. And when what was the turning point? What was the turning time? Well, it says Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah. 
who, can we imagine, gave Methuselah his name. When I die, it comes. Who gave him that name? Well, we would imagine that his father, Enoch, did. So he gives him this name and something changes. We don't know how, we don't know why. But Enoch began to believe in the imminent coming of God, bringing judgment on this earth. And at that point in his life, he changed. He began to walk with God. Now past that, we know so little about Enoch. There's a lot of extra biblical stuff. There's a lot of other commentary and stories that we don't know if they're true or not. But what we know of Enoch is that he had information about God and his judgment that was coming. And it drove him in obedience and faith to walk with God and to please God by it. Now here's what's, here's what's true. We don't know exactly how much information Enoch had, but I know this, we know more than Enoch did. We know far more than Enoch did. Let me ask you specifically, what do you know about God? What has he revealed to you? It's not as if that you're only responsible for the things that you actually know. That doesn't matter whether you know or not. But I do want you to know this morning clearly what the scriptures teach about God. The first thing I'll do is just point you to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Consider what verse 1 and 2 says. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. By the way, now that you know this, one of those prophets that God used to speak to the people on earth was Enoch. He preached. But then it says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So there was a time when these other prophets who knew less had been revealed less and preached less to the people. There was that. There's, just been, there's been a cumulative revealing of the truths of God until now, well, 2,000 years ago, when God spoke in these last days through his son. So God has spoken to us by his son. Enoch had been given some information about God and he believed it. He diligently sought after it and he pleased God. But what about us? Well, we don't have the same message that Enoch had. We have far more. Do we believe it? Do we believe what the son of God has revealed to us? particular information are you talking about what has the son revealed to us well look at hebrews chapter 4 just skipping forward three more chapters at verse 16 hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 it says let us then with confidence because of what the son has declared to us draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help or grace to help in time of need this is what God has revealed to us today. From the oldest to the youngest, it's this. In the, through his son, he has revealed to us that we can draw near to the throne of grace, the throne of glory. And what would we expect to find there? Grace, mercy, and time of need. That's what Jesus has told us. That's the message that we have today. 
And by the way, you probably have already recognized this. Drawing near to God is a very important theme in the book of Hebrews. We see, we've seen it a bunch of times. We, we just saw it in Hebrews 4.16. But you see it again in today's passage, right? Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would, hypothetically speaking, if you're going to draw near to God, you have to believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so there's this drawing near to God and this shrinking back from God, away from God. And that's what we see if you look back at Hebrews 10. Still talking about this idea of shrinking back and moving forward or drawing near. Verse 37, quoting out of Habakkuk. Habakkuk. 1037 says, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay. Doesn't that sound a little bit like Enoch, by the way? A little while, and the coming one will come and not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, which is to say, he'll do what 416 says. He'll draw near to God. He will not shrink back. And it says in 38, if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. No pleasure. It's interesting, again, there's that idea of pleasure. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, right? You can't please God without faith. You can't draw near without faith. Faith in Jesus and what he's accomplished, the door that he's opened. But you'll shrink back without faith. You'll shrink back, and and God says, I'm not pleased with that. The person who shrinks back doesn't believe what I've said is true. And that's why Christians pray boldly, confidently to God in the name of Jesus, When you pray your prayers, you better make sure that at least in your mind and heart, you are praying because Jesus has opened a door. Whether you say, in Jesus' name, amen, real quick at the end of your prayer or not, you better go in the spirit of knowing that God has opened the door to his presence through Jesus. Today, we've been given more information than Enoch. We've been given more than Abraham. We've been given more than Abel. We've been given more than Noah. We've been given more than all of these men, these brothers combined. We have an account of the eternal Son of God entering into our world, living a perfect life, dying in our place, defeating death and sin through the resurrection, and calling us then as a result to trust in him for salvation. That's what we have, an invitation to trust that, that we can come to God because Jesus has made us worthy when we trust him. Maybe you're here this morning and you've, you believe this, but you've been procrastinating to really draw near to God. You think that this is true, but you've not really submitted your life to this, which is to say, in some sense, you don't actually believe it. You still think that there's a better way to please, and not God, but to please yourself. Maybe that's where you're at today. I asked a moment ago, do you really want to please God? Some of you are saying, well, now that I know that there's a way, I'm just still not ready yet. And maybe it's because you're still tied up in sin. You enjoy the pleasure that your life that you've chosen, not walking in step with God, but walking to the beat of your own drum. You enjoy that too much. And to you, I would just beg you to believe that God is coming with his saints He's coming with his holy ones and he will bring justice. Believe that God in his mercy has invited us to come to him though. And when we humble ourselves and come to him in faith, believing that Jesus paid for our sins, 
We will be accepted. We will have a right and good relationship with God. Maybe you're procrastinating and you're holding back because you're just not sure that the reward that faith brings is actually worth it. Or maybe you believe that the reward that faith brings is not that good. I remember as a kid thinking about heaven and with such a a one or two dimensional mind thinking, I I just, I kind of like life here. Some of you are thinking if I walk with God, he might transport me. Well, I still have a lot of living to do. Maybe I shouldn't walk too closely with him. Maybe that's you here this morning. Maybe you're doubting the reward that faith brings. I want to assure you on the authority of God's word that there is a reward for faith in God. That's the third point. And that's the final one. There is a reward for faith in God. Look at verse 5. It says there in chapter 11, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. There's two things I want you to, to point out here. I want you to see here. One is that he was not found. That's in the imperfect past, which means this. They kept looking for him. <laughs> they just kept looking for him. It wasn't like, hey, where's Enoch? Oh, he's gone. We don't know. They kept moving on. No, they just they kept looking for him. They're like, hey, you know, I, I went up to the cabin up on top of Mount whatever, and uh, I thought maybe I'd see him up there. You know, we, he's been missing for 60 days or so, and I just thought maybe, maybe he was up there, but he wasn't. We'll keep looking for him. And that's kind of what they did. But what's interesting is that it's kind of the same idea that, that Enoch had continually walked with God or continually sought to please God. There's this continual seeking for God, and there was a continual seeking for Enoch, but Enoch wasn't found. Why? Because he had been translated. He had been transported. That's really an interesting word there. It's used a couple times in the Bible. At one point, it's used in Acts chapter 7 of um, the, the, the children of Israel or the children of Jacob taking Jacob's body out of Egypt and transporting them to Shechem. You know, whenever they left Egypt, you know, the, the Exodus, they left there and they took Jacob's body with them. They transported it. They translated it. It's also used in Galatians 1.6 of the, uh, the position that the uh, Galatians had suddenly changed their position. They were placing their faith entirely in Jesus. Now they began to place it in Jesus plus circumcision. So they had translated or transported their, their faith. And those are just a couple examples. But here in this sense of, of, of Enoch being transported or translated or taken is this idea that he was moved geographically. He wasn't moved, though, from one continent to the next. He was moved from here and on earth to there in the presence of God in heaven. He pleased God. He walked with God, and he was translated. He was transported. He was taken. In the case of Enoch, he was commended or testified by God that he was pleasing to God through his faith by being taken. That was part of his reward, taken to be with God, right? Well, what is the point? Well, the point is this. This list, this comprehensive list that continues on far past Abel and Cain, for many more verses, it wants us to know that the reward that we have been promised, we may not get it in this life, but the reward that we've been promised is sure it will come. 
When you think about the reward that God has made to you, the promise that he's made to you, the reward that he has set before you, know this, that it is sure. It's sure for those who seek him out. Jeremiah 29 tells us that if we seek the Lord, we will find him when we seek for him with all of our hearts. You will get the reward that you want. If you really want God, the reality is you will get God. But I want you to notice something. I want to throw up on the screen for you Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 through 24. I want you to see something here. Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 through 24. So this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and he named them man when they were created. Adam had lived 130 years. He fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. All right? This is interesting, telling us about his generations. The the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Okay? This is really important. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Okay, that's the, that's the synopsis. Let's go to the next verse, though. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Okay? Skip this one. Let's go to verse 8. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Okay, let's go to the next one. Then Enosh had lived, when Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Keep going. Keep going. Here we go. What happens to Enosh? After 905 years, what happens to Enosh? He died. We could keep going. Keep going. Let's go. Kenan. Here's Kenan. He fathers Mahal, whatever that guy's name is. A couple sons and daughters, 840 years. What happens next? 910 years total, and what happens? He died. What's the next one? Here's this guy. He fathers Jared. Go on. Move on. You see it. You get it. He died. If you have your copy of God's Word, you can just circle, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. This is a big graveyard here. Right? Let's keep going. Here's Jared. He's lived 162 years. He fathers Enoch. Okay, keep going. Right? He's got a bunch of other sons and daughters. Right? Busy guy, 800 years there. 962 in all. And what happens at the end of his life? He's got a bunch of kids. He dies. Okay, then what happens with Enoch? Let's see. Same thing, I'm sure. Enoch lived 65 years. He fathers Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. That's different. That's a little bit different. The other ones that says they, they lived... Right? And then they died. This one says, he walked with God. Okay, I wonder what happens at the end of this. You, you already know. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Wait a minute. That's a lot shorter. He's just a young whippersnapper. The rest of these guys are 900 and some years. He's only 365. Okay, then what happens to Enoch's life? Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And that's the end of Enoch. Enoch lives, walks with God after his son is born, Methuselah, and then instead of dying, like the cadence, we say, well, every time I read the Bible, it's just getting some of these Old Testament passages, it's just the same thing, same thing. Well, you've got to pay attention, right? Because if you hadn't paid attention, you would have missed the fact that Enoch did not die, that God took him. Why, why does it matter so much that all of these men died? except for Enoch. Why does that matter? Well, because God had promised something to man. 
He promised something to man that Enoch actually believed. And it was this, that when we sin, when we rebel against God, we will surely die. Now, as a way to remind us, as a way to reward Enoch and to remind us of our reward that is before us, God takes Enoch. He rewards him for his faith in God. And we're able to read that and be reminded that, hey, our faith will bring a reward. When we walk with God, when we believe God and what he said, we will be rewarded. So the the reward is sure, but let me also say this. The individual results may vary. You've heard that before. We listen to those medical commercials and we say, oh, that's true. Maybe, but I'll probably be like that guy on the TV screen or that, that girl on the TV screen. I'll probably lose 400 pounds in a week or two. Individual results may vary, right, at the end. Well, it's true here. I mean, you notice Enoch's life. He walked with God. Some of you are like, I've walked with God for a while, and I'm saying that humbly, but I'm still with God. I'm, I'm still here on this earth. He hasn't taken me, not yet. But I want you to notice, who did we look at last week? Well, last week we, we looked at Abel. And we don't know how old Abel was when he died, but Abel did, in fact, die. He died. Abel had faith in God. He's listed here first in this long line of the heroes of faith. He stood for God. He walked in faith. And he died at what we can imagine, a young age. And in contrast, here is Abel who walks with, or I'm sorry, Enoch, who walks with God, and he doesn't even die. He's just taken to God. You say, what's the point of all this? Well, I want to draw out a point for you this morning. I think that it's clear in the text. Individual results may vary. You might say, well, hey, I'm a little bit frustrated right now. I feel like I'm not pleasing God. I feel like my life's not pleasing to God because every time I turn around, something's happening to me. I can't believe this. I've been following God. I I just did these things and that thing. I just took a big step of faith, and now I'm in the hospital. And I don't even know why I'm in the hospital. Why am I here? This wasn't even on my radar a few days ago, and now I'm sick. Now I've got cancer, or now I've got this or that. Maybe it was the death of a spouse. Here, God, I've been following you faithfully for so long, and now it feels like you're angry at me because I don't have my, my partner. And I feel really, really lonely And it feels like you hate me now. Or God, I was skipped over for that promotion at work. And you know, you and I both know that I deserve that promotion. But why didn't you let me have it? Why didn't you give that promotion to me? Why was I skipped over? Are you angry at me? Am I not pleasing to you? I'm walking with you. I'm I'm trying to live by faith. I I believe your promises are true. Maybe it's a wayward child. Maybe it's a wayward children. And you're saying, God, I, you, you told me if I would raise up my children and the way that they should go, that when they're older, they wouldn't depart. And now it feels like maybe I did that wrong. Maybe I did something wrong. Maybe, maybe you're just angry at me. Maybe I haven't pleased you enough. Or maybe you're saying this morning, I just don't have real good relationships. I don't have good friendships. And, and God, I kind of felt like... If I pleased you, that you'd bless me with this. And what we have to be careful of is this. God never promised that you would not have poor health. 
He never promised you that your spouse and loved ones wouldn't die, that you would get every promotion, that you'd, all your children would never be wayward, nor that you would ever feel lonely, even in a crowd. He never promised those things. But what he has promised is that when we seek after him with all of our hearts, with every bit of who we are, when we believe what he has said, that we will get him. And that's really, brothers and sisters, that's what heaven's all about. Heaven is about God. And you say, but what about my friend who has good health? Well, results may vary here in this life. When you begin to walk with God at that point and the point that you exit this reality, it's going to vary. It's going to look different, wildly different. Some of us will die young and some of us will die old, wishing we had died young. But the reality is this. From this point that we begin to walk with God to this point that we are actually in his presence, it varies. But once we are in his presence, it will not vary at all. And we will be there for all of eternity. And how is this success accessed? How do we come to God? How do we please God? This is the big question that we're asking. How do we please God? He seems like he's just unable to please Well, scriptures tell us this, nothing pleases God more than when a sinner comes to him by faith through his son. Nothing. That's the main idea. What has God given us to believe this morning? He's given us to believe this, that when we trust in his son, when we believe that his son has made a way for us, sinful as we are, to come into the presence of God, that pleases God. Can he be pleased? Can he be happy with us? Absolutely. And I'm going to throw in a, hopefully a clean segue here into communion. When when Christians come to this table and when we receive from this table, what we're saying is, we're, we're visibly saying to everybody that's watching, both those who are partaking and those who are not partaking, we're saying, I believe that God is pleased with me. I believe he's pleased with me, and I'm taking this as a sign of that. And I want you to know that I, I think that God is pleased with me, and, and, and not because of anything I've done. It's not something I already have, but I'm, by faith I'm believing that this, in, what, in what this represents. And what does it represent? That Jesus' broken body and shed blood opens a door for us to come into God's presence. So Jesus, he commanded his disciples to celebrate this act this supper, continually until he returns. By faith, we obey, and by faith, we continue to come to the table. We continue to look for his return. We look to the sky saying that he's coming. He's coming with his saints. He's coming to judge, but he won't judge us. Why? He's already pleased with us because of our faith in Jesus. So as we take these elements into ourselves, we take it as a sign that God is now pleased with us. Maybe you're saying, I I still, I heard everything that you said today, but I still just don't know if God's pleased with me. Well, I would invite you, please, to consider Jesus. There's nothing that God is requiring of you more to do but just to trust what Jesus has already done. And so as you see this body of believers take this. If you're not yet believing in Christ, 
If you're not a baptized member of a, of a church, then just observe and realize that what we're saying is that God's pleased with us because of what Jesus has done. And if you want to please God, then trust in what Jesus has done for your, for, on your behalf. Communion is declaring the Lord's death until he comes, until we die, or maybe we won't. Maybe we'll be taken as well. Maybe we will also be translated. I don't know whether we'll die or the Lord will return before then. But either way, until he comes, we're going to be like what Jude said about Enoch. We're just going to continue to preach that he's coming. And it's funny, Jesus said that as when you take this, you're declaring my death. You're declaring the gospel until I come. And so we're about to preach a sermon. He said, well, you've already preached a long one. Well, we're, we're going to preach one together. And as we do, if you're listening, listen, Jesus is pleased with us. God is pleased with us because our faith is in Jesus. I want to just invite you to, to bow your heads, close your eyes, and just take a moment to consider this supper. I want you to consider the weight of your own sin and let that lead and drive you to the cross of Christ. Let that drive you to gratitude and that God has paid for your sin. Let it drive you to pleasure that God is pleased with you. Consider that we're coming to the table together. And so ask yourself, is there someone here today that I'm not actually in communion with? Maybe there's a sin in your heart, a, a sin in your life against some other brother or sister, or maybe they've sinned against you in some way. Friends, now's the time to, to take care of that. There's a preaching in this act that says everything's good in the hood. We're all friends, we're all reconciled in Christ, but if there's physically something unreconciled, then now's the time to settle it.